most faculty are on the left and many on the far left. The people who are not are afraid to speak up. They hadn't been gripped by this woke ideology that outcome of result for all groups absolutely has to be achieved by hook or by crook. I, I see that as the central trope of wokeism, frankly. Family structure is a big problem in the black community and a big part of why they're failing, they're failing to progress more. There is, at the end of the day, very little that we can do to help them at this point besides abolishing discrimination. Now the ball was in their court and self-help was the name of the game and most of their difficulties were due to self-sabotage. So that's not a popular point of view today. It's part of our dogman ideology that all ethnic groups are equal, that outcomes have to be equal, that we somehow have to make them equal. And if we don't, it's racism. That's, I would call that the axiom 101 of wokeism. I think the West has a distinctive culture. It needs to really worry about preserving it. I think vast numbers of people from the third world undermine it. If I could take the heat, and there's plenty of heat when you voice unpopular views, believe me, you can't even know the half of it, right? They also don't like my politics. They don't like my views, but they can't be bothered to actually engage me about them. The love of truth is the faintest of human passions. Welcome to the Genius of Thomas Sowell podcast. This is episode 29, and I'm your host, Alan Woolen. I named this episode Fight the Good Fight because today's guest, Professor Amy Wax, reminds me of the crucial importance of fighting for what you believe in and not just fighting against what you don't. In order to prepare your mind for my conversation with Professor Wax, I'd like to play the beginning of the 1981 classic, Fight the Good Fight, by Canadian rock trio Triumph. Once you've heard singer, songwriter, and lead guitarist Rick Emmett's magical lyrics, haunting voice, and wailing guitar, you can never forget the spirit and energy of this song.
Today's guest is Professor Amy Wax. Amy is the Robert Mundheim Professor of Law at the University of Pennsylvania Law School, where she has been teaching for the past 22 years. Amy is not only a law professor, she's also an award-winning law professor. She has won at least three awards for teaching excellence during her tenure at Penn Law. She wrote a book in 2009 called Race, Wrongs, and Remedies, Group Justice in the 21st Century. Before becoming a law professor, Amy worked as an attorney for both the Solicitor General of the United States and for the United States Department of Justice. She has argued 15 cases before the U.S. Supreme Court. At Columbia Law School, Amy was editor of the Law Review, and she graduated with her J.D. in 1987. Amy has quite an impressive resume, I think you'll agree. But are you ready to be truly blown away? Before going to law school, Amy was a medical doctor. She graduated from Harvard Medical School in 1981 and did her residency in neurology at Cornell Medical Center in New York until 1987. She worked part-time as a neurologist at a clinic in Brooklyn in order to pay her own way through law school. How many people do you know who are both a doctor and a lawyer? I don't know a single person. Well, before I met Amy Wax. My first introduction to Amy's ideas came from a podcast with Glenn Lowry. I was immediately struck by the power of her ideas, as well as the clarity of her expression. Not to mention the force of her conviction. I was immediately a fan, and I watched with great interest all three of her appearances on The Glenn Show. On the first day of the Stanford Academic Freedom Conference in November, which was the subject of episode 27, the first person I saw when I walked in the room on the first morning, scone and coffee in my hand, was Amy Wax. Although there was a seat available at the table Amy was sitting at, I didn't take it. I was way too intimidated to be so bold. I sat somewhere else. That night, Stanford Business School treated all the conference attendees to a fabulous dinner at a restaurant called MacArthur Park in Palo Alto. The dinner was buffet style, so I filled my plate, then took a random seat at a six-top already occupied by four other men and two empty chairs. I introduced myself and sat down to enjoy some great food after a long day of presentations. Shortly after I sat down, guess who filled the last empty chair at the table? Yup, Amy Wax. I then got to enjoy a two-hour dinner in Amy's company. I emailed Amy after the conference to invite her on the podcast. She remembered me from dinner, and here we are today. Before I bring Amy onto the show, I think it's important to tell the story about how she recently came to the attention of the general public. In August of 2017, Amy co-authored a powerful op-ed in the Philadelphia Inquirer called Paying the Price for Breakdown of the Country's Bourgeois Culture. That op-ed started a wave of controversy which continues to this day, almost six years later. Petitions were posted online demanding that Penn Law fire Amy Wax. One petition I found on change.org 
currently has over 85,000 signatures. Podcast interviews with Amy on The Glenn Lowry Show followed, which generated even more controversy. Glenn is a good interviewer, and he was able to draw Amy out so she could express a wide range of her views, which undoubtedly were formed over many decades of study combined with life experience. She expressed her opinion about affirmative action policies, about racial diversity mandates, about immigration policies, and a number of other hot-button subjects. Here's a clip from the Glenn Lowry Show about affirmative action at Penn Law. Here's a very inconvenient fact, Glenn. I, I don't think I've ever seen a black student graduate in the top quarter of the class and rarely, rarely in the top half. I can think of one or two students who've scored in the top half in my required first year course. Amy was saying that from her experience teaching at Penn Law, that black students rarely score in the top half of the class and never score in the top quarter. These are basically empirical observations, which, if untrue, would be pretty easy to refute, I would think. As Amy said in another clip, So I don't know whether I'm being accused of actually getting the facts wrong or whether I'm uh, guilty for getting the facts right. I, I, I'm really even not sure what the accusation is here at this point. Here's another clip of Amy expressing doubts about Asian immigration into the United States. Um, let's call it danger of the dominance of an Asian elite in this country. And what does that mean? What is that going to mean uh, to change the culture? And that's not a popular idea to say that. Like, why Why would you ever say anything? Well, what's the like danger? What, what, what would be wrong with having a lot of uh, Chinese or uh, of Indian or uh, the Korean engineers, physicians, uh, computer scientists, uh, and uh, whatnot running around here, creating value, uh, enlivening the society. I mean, I don't see how we lose from that. How do we lose from that? Well, does the spirit of liberty beat in their breast, Glenn? <laughs> that is my question. Glenn laughed at Amy's response, and so did I. I mean, that's a really good question. Does the spirit of liberty beat in their breast? I wonder if one of these Asian engineers will one day invent a new type of stethoscope, which can detect if the spirit of liberty is beating in someone's breast. Now that would be a useful invention, and we should require that all politicians be tested with it. By the way, I got both of these clips just by Googling CNN Amy Wax, because I knew if anyone would listen to everything Amy Wax ever said in public, and pull out the most provocative clips, it would be CNN. They saved me the trouble of having to listen to all three Glenn shows over again. I knew CNN was good for something. They are still trying to fire Amy from Penn Law for her views and her words. They're having a hard time because Amy is a tenured professor. She's also a fighter, and she refuses to back down and give them a win. They're doing their best over at Penn Law to make her life there miserable, probably in the hopes that she'll just get fed up and quit. You know, the process is the punishment. 
But whatever happens with Amy, the message has been sent loud and clear to every other professor in the country. Speak up on certain issues in certain ways and be prepared to have your life and your career ruined. So think twice, my friends. Better to go along to get along. Contradict the approved narrative at your own peril. To better understand the controversy that arose out of Amy's original op-ed from August 2017, I think it's helpful to hear what she and her co-author Larry Alexander wrote in its original form. Here goes. Too few Americans are qualified for the jobs available. Male working-age labor force participation is at Depression-era lows. Opioid abuse is widespread. Homicidal violence plagues inner cities. Almost half of all children are born out of wedlock, and even more are raised by single mothers. Many college students lack basic skills, and high school students rank below those from two dozen other countries. The causes of these phenomena are multiple and complex, but implicated in these and other maladies is the breakdown of the country's bourgeois culture. That culture laid out the script we all were supposed to follow, get married before you have children, and strive to stay married for their sake, get the education you need for gainful employment, work hard, and avoid idleness, go the extra mile for your employer or client, be a patriot ready to serve the country. Be neighborly, civic-minded, and charitable. Avoid coarse language in public. Be respectful of authority. Eschew substance abuse and crime. These basic cultural precepts reigned from the late 1940s to the mid-1960s. They could be followed by people of all backgrounds and abilities, especially when backed up by almost universal endorsement. Adherence was a major contributor to the productivity, educational gains, and social coherence of that period. Did everyone abide by those precepts? Of course not. There are always rebels and hypocrites, those who publicly endorse the norms but transgress them. But, as the saying goes, hypocrisy is the homage vice pays to virtue. Even the deviants rarely disavowed or openly disparaged the prevailing expectations. Was everything perfect during the period of bourgeois cultural hegemony? Of course not. There was racial discrimination, limited sex roles, and pockets of anti-Semitism. However, steady improvements for women and minorities were underway, even when bourgeois norms reigned. Banishing discrimination and expanding opportunity does not require the demise of bourgeois culture. Quite the opposite. The loss of bourgeois habits seriously impeded the progress of disadvantaged groups. That trend also accelerated the destructive consequences of the growing welfare state, which, by taking over financial support of families, reduced the need for two parents. A strong pro-marriage norm might have blunted this effect. Instead, the number of single parents grew astronomically, producing children more prone to academic failure, addiction, idleness, crime, and poverty. The cultural script began to break down in the late 1960s. 
a combination of factors, prosperity, the pill, the expansion of higher education, and the doubts surrounding the Vietnam War, encouraged an anti-authoritarian, adolescent, wish-fulfillment ideal, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, that was unworthy of, and unworkable for, a mature, prosperous adult society. This era saw the beginnings of an identity politics that inverted the colorblind aspiration of civil rights leaders like the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. into an obsession with race, ethnicity, gender, and now sexual preference. And those adults with influence over the culture, for a variety of reasons, abandoned their role as advocates for respectability, civility, and adult values. As a consequence, the counterculture made great headway, particularly among the chattering classes, academics, writers, artists, actors, and journalists, who relished liberation from conventional constraints and turned condemning America and reviewing its crimes into a class marker of virtue and sophistication. All cultures are not equal, or at least they are not equal in preparing people to be productive in an advanced economy. The culture of the Plains Indians was designed for nomadic hunters, but is not suited to a first world 21st century environment. Nor are the single parent antisocial habits prevalent among some working class whites. The anti-acting white rap culture of inner city blacks and or the anti-assimilation ideas gaining ground among some Hispanic immigrants. These cultural orientations are not only incompatible with what an advanced free market economy and a viable democracy require, they are also destructive of a sense of solidarity and reciprocity among Americans. If the bourgeois cultural script, which the upper middle class still largely observes, but now hesitates to preach, cannot be widely reinstated, things are likely to get worse for us all. Would the re-embrace of bourgeois norms by the ordinary Americans who have abandoned them significantly reduce society's pathologies? There is every reason to believe so. Among those who currently follow the old precepts, regardless of their level of education or affluence, the homicide rate is tiny, opioid addiction is rare, and poverty rates are low. Those who live by the simple rules that most people used to accept may not end up rich or hold elite jobs, but their lives will go far better than they do now. All schools and neighborhoods would be much safer and more pleasant. More students from all walks of life would be educated for constructive employment and democratic participation. But restoring the hegemony of the bourgeois culture will require the arbiters of culture, the academics, media, and Hollywood, to relinquish multicultural grievance polemics and the preening pretense of defending the downtrodden. Instead of bashing the bourgeois culture, they should return to the 1950s posture of celebrating it. The main argument of Amy's op-ed is that a general return to what she calls bourgeois culture would solve a lot of society's problems. Get married, 
have kids, stay married, get educated, get a job, work hard, go the extra mile, be patriotic, be neighborly, be charitable, be respectful of authority, don't curse in public, and don't do drugs. Pretty basic stuff, which, I assert, is the general plan most of you listening to this podcast are already either following or at least trying to follow. But my question is this, why do we have to import a French word to describe this type of common sense stuff? I mean, who among us can really define the word bourgeois? And isn't there a homegrown English word which could do the heavy lifting? Go figure. So this episode is about fighting the good fight. I asked Amy to come on the show because she's one of the best role models I know for fighting the good fight. She reminds me a lot of Thomas Sowell, who, in my mind, is also someone who has always fought the good fight. But what are Amy Wax and Thomas Sowell fighting for? I think the answer is clear. They're fighting for the truth, and they always have. Fighting for truth does not mean that you never get it wrong. On the contrary, Thomas Sowell got some things wrong, in my humble opinion. Amy Wax probably gets some things wrong, too. If you want to fight for the truth, you have to find your own way, your own path. My way is this podcast. What's your way? In the conversation that follows, Amy and I discuss a wide range of subjects, from woke ideology the so-called feminization of academia, Thomas Sowell, her course on conservative political thought, affirmative action, and finally, what it means to her to fight the good fight. What does Amy get right and what does she get wrong? Well, I'll let you be the judge of that. Professor Amy Wax, welcome to the Genius of Thomas Sowell podcast. It's great seeing you again. We uh, we met at the Academic Freedom Conference at Stanford. And we had dinner, and I remember it very, very well. Oh, great. And I and enjoyed the conference, but as I predicted, not much came out of it, at least for now. But Well, yeah. I mean, one of the first questions I had for you is, what was your takeaway from the conference? Well, I certainly enjoyed going to the conference, and I got a lot out of hearing from the people at the conference and their various... Uh, takes on what's going on in academia and their points of view. And it was very much uh, encouraging and heartening to know that there were people in academia, albeit, I think, uh, in the distinct minority, as far as I can tell, uh, who believe in this old-fashioned ideal of what the university should be, basically a liberal conception, uh, which is my conception. And liberalism as a societal regime, you know, I understand has drawbacks, which are very much explored, have been explored recently by people on both the right and the left. Um, but it is a, uh, a delicate achievement and ecology that has delivered many benefits to society of prosperity and peace and stability. And as a matter of the fundamental principle for an intellectual community, such as the modern university, I think it is not bettered in any way. 
It certainly is not by the woke dispensation that now seems to uh, dominate almost everywhere, uh, and that is what the conference was challenging. So I was very much on board with many of the themes um, and points made. Now, having said that, and being heartened by being part of a community that of like-minded people, you know, I did predict that not much would come out of this conference in terms of action or change. Uh, and the reason why, uh, and I'm not the first to say this, uh, is that the Academy is very much in the thrall of and controlled by people uh, who have abandoned or repudiated or only pay lip service to liberal values but have adopted this so-called woke ideology. And I'm talking here about faculty and the administrators that they have hired because the faculty uh, ultimately get to decide that and the, and the leadership of universities which come out of the faculty. And now practically every university, uh, certainly the ones whose names we recognize, is in the grip of that dogma. And it is a challenge, one that I think the conference never quite figured an answer to, of how to loosen that grip. It's very, very difficult for two reasons. First, most faculty are on the left and many on the far left. The people who are not are afraid to speak up. And there is now a massive bureaucracy that has been appointed the Diversity, Inclusion, and Equity Bureaucracy, DIE Bureaucracy, uh, that essentially runs the show and is bound and determined to turn the university into a woke bastion of far-left progressive ideas. And that includes a distinct denigration of the notion of free inquiry, of robust wide-open debate, um, of free speech principles and values, that's one of their agenda items. And the second is elevating other priorities and values. That is psychological safety, uh, feel good, um, acceptance, uh, not ever hurting anybody's feelings or upsetting them, not challenging people's presuppositions about uh, hot button issues, like race, primarily, of course, gender, uh, climate change, how to run the economy, etc. Uh, I call this the elevation of the values of the nursery and the kindergarten. And, you know, no, everybody has to feel good about themselves, feel included, feel comfortable, and feel at home. And that's the most important thing. And it has accompanied the feminization of the academy not surprisingly, because all the survey data show that women care about those values much more, or they are much more likely to care about those values, that would be more accurate, than men are. Not just a little bit more likely, but to the tune of many times more likely. And as women come more and more to dominate the academy, the classic priorities and values and practices are endangered. Do you think that when, when women started to vote, 
uh, after the suffrage movement. Do you think that that led to a shifting leftward of the body politic in general? Well, it certainly contributed to it. Uh, I think there are many forces that have pushed the body politic leftward, so to speak. I mean, the main one is the weakening of so-called bourgeois values, sort of Protestant ethic values, which are a country's founding values, frankly. Uh, that sounds parochial, but historically it is absolutely true. And that includes restraint, attempts at self-sufficiency and independence, an abhorrence of dependency, of redistribution, a, all of that stuff has contributed the, the uh, positive views of the welfare state or more positive views of the welfare state, less of an emphasis on liberty and freedom from government involvement and restraint, which are part of our Whiggish uh, sort of British legacy. All of this stuff has been fading for a very long time. I mean, let's, let's be clear. Okay, the uh, suspiciousness towards traditional values, um, the propensity to question everything, uh, to subject it to a kind of rational critique. That's, of course, Enlightenment-type uh, priorities, which have been regnant for a very long time. Uh, so all that stuff was happening. But I think that once women got the vote, their... Uh, values, um, their sense of what society should be like, had a lot more purchase with voters, obviously. We now have all of these female voters. So values like compassion, economic supports, a suspiciousness towards capitalism, towards competition, towards aggressive foreign policy, although we've had plenty of that, ironically. And just the downgrading of the importance of robust debate in getting at the truth, the downgrading of the importance of getting at the truth. I, I honestly, I'm not just saying this. Surveys have shown it. Women just place less emphasis on intellectual integrity, uh, intellectual development, technological advances as social priorities. Of course, they enjoy all the technological advances, but the rough and tumble process of getting there is something they don't like so much. So society has been influenced by all of that, of course. It isn't really till recently, though, I think that women have really become aggressive about uh, these things. For a long time, they tended to let their husbands and menfolk take the lead. And I think there was a, a very long period where, despite suffrage, women tended to stand down from politics or certain aspects of it uh, just out of habit or tradition or understanding. Uh, and a lot of that has fallen away. But of course, now we have a university system where virtually the whole establishment has gone co-ed. Women have poured into it. Women are now getting more education than men are. If you go down below the most elite institutions, the undergraduate population is tilted heavily female, and that has a lot of ramifications. 
First of all, it's much harder for tradition-minded men to resist the incursion of the, you know, the values of the nursery and the kindergarten into the university supplanting the traditional priorities and methods and practices of the university, which I think were by and large very positive and ought to be protected and preserved, but they somehow didn't get protected and preserved as much as they should have been, I think. The second is there are all sorts of other ramifications. I think it has contributed to the decline in marriage among the educated class, although actually, ironically, the educated class, at least among whites and Asians, is the most married in the country right now, but their rates are declining. Why is that? Because there are fewer men to marry in the university, and that's where a lot of women meet their spouses. And women are very hypergamous. That's a complicated way of saying they prefer to marry men of the same status or higher status than they are. And that is very sticky and robust preference. So until that changes, and feminism hasn't done much to change that preference, they are going to have a lot of trouble finding men to marry. The second ramification, of course, is that there's been a feminization of the curriculum. So the subjects and the ways of approaching the topics that are traditional parts of a university education have now shifted. Once again, I go back to the search for truth, the search for the right answer, the desire to explore reality. I think the influence of women coupled with the anti-racism movement, and I have some thoughts about what inspired that, but you put the two together and you've got this perfect storm for uh, muzzling and distorting all of the human sciences. This, This cannot be confined. It's everywhere, you know, history, psychology, developmental, empirical, biological anthropology, sociology, all of these field law, and now medicine, the sciences, even the hard sciences are being distorted, contaminated, and in my mind, denatured by these constraints and priorities to the point where I feel sorry for people in the human sciences. Actually, there's so many topics and research projects that they really can't pursue. And there are certainly answers that they are not allowed to find. Uh, So I wouldn't want to be in these fields today. And that is all, I think, a product of feminization coupled with the incursion of this woke ideology. Wow. Amy really took this conversation in a direction I never expected. This was not something that we discussed at the Stanford Academic Freedom Conference. I'm very intrigued by Amy's description of the quote-unquote feminization of academia. According to Amy, with the trend of more and more women in academia, came the infusion of alternative values into higher education. Amy calls this the values of the nursery and kindergarten. Safetyism, feel-goodism, not upsetting or challenging others, compassion, economic support, suspicion toward the rough-and-tumble competitive nature of capitalism, as well as less importance paid 
to getting at the truth, whatever it may be. According to Amy, there is hard empirical data about the differences in proclivities between men and women, and that the dominance of women in academia and politics has real, long-term consequences for society. What I find refreshing about Amy is that she is willing to step outside the so-called Overton window and talk about things which she finds important, even though others might find such topics taboo. If you're not familiar with the Overton window, it's a concept that was coined by a fellow named Joseph Overton in the mid-1990s. He said that an idea's viability depends mainly on whether or not it falls within a range of ideas viewed as acceptable by the mainstream population at a given time. For example, in the early 20th century, it was considered perfectly normal and well within the Overton window to talk about whether or not women should have the right to vote. Now, only 100 years later, such a conversation is considered totally outside the Overton window, and such talk would get you kicked out of most cocktail parties, or at least never invited back. What I like about Amy is that she's like, Overton who? She is willing to talk about whatever she thinks is important and true, regardless of where any particular listener might stand. The conversation continues. Before you wrote your uh, op-ed for the Philadelphia Inquirer on bourgeois values, were you pretty much quiet on these subjects and just doing you know, your work as a law professor? Is that what really catapulted you into the public eye, that one op-ed? Well, it did, but I was not exactly silent on related topics. I mean, I had been teaching social welfare law and policy, which is a fancy name for poverty law and the law of inequality for a very long time. I had written articles that were sort of out of step with the predominant left-leaning zeitgeist for years and years. I, I wrote a book called Race, Wrongs, and Remedies, in which I basically said, you know, what Jason Riley says later, please stop helping us. Blacks would be a lot better off if we abolish some of these social programs and, you know, welfare-based initiatives because there is, at the end of the day, very little that we can do to help them at this point besides abolishing discrimination. Now the ball was in their court and self-help was the name of the game and most of their difficulties were due to self-sabotage. So that's not a popular point of view today. That's a point of view that would get me in deep trouble today. But back in 2009, when I published that book, you could still get away with saying that sort of thing. I don't think a lot of people liked it, but they weren't eager to or didn't think that they could get away with or didn't think about trying to fire me and get rid of me. They just said, isn't it awful that she says these things? You know, she's so wrong. She's such a right winger. Uh, And that was the end of it. And the students had a very different attitude, too. Students were much more deferential, much more uh, sort of conscious of who was in authority and why they were in authority. They hadn't been gripped by this woke ideology that 
outcome of result for all groups absolutely has to be achieved by hook or by crook. I, I see that as the central trope of wokeism, frankly, and especially when it comes to race. Um, they hadn't hardened their commitment to that. So what I'm really trying to say to you is, you know, I've been myself for a very long time. I haven't really changed my views at all. I have come to my views over years, but then I haven't seen a reason to really deviate from them. But what has changed is society and the academy, and that change has been dramatic and radical and rapid. Now, you teach a a class in conservative political thought at Penn Law, right? I do. And uh, tell, tell us a little bit about that. Do you talk at all about Thomas Sowell in there? Well, uh, it's a, a very, uh, <laughs> let me just say something about conservative political and legal thought is a big, big topic. Okay. Um, so we cover a lot of ground, both historically and conceptually and sociologically race, which in many ways is, is sort of the most salient uh, problem our society faces right now, and one that I think influences a lot of our thinking, and I can talk more about that, is only a, a part of that course. It's actually a relatively small part of that course, frankly, uh, because I seek to go back to the roots and the origins of conservative thought and ideas. So we, we read a lot of people who are, you know, dead white males and the like, um, who are unknown to the students. They know nothing about any thinking or individuals or characters on the right side of the spectrum. It's just not part of their education. They pay tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars or so-called university education, and it it's so utterly one-sided and tendentious. You'd think that that would upset them, but of course they don't know enough to be upset. Uh, but in um, the some of the lessons, some of the classes, we do read some Thomas Sowell. Frankly, we probably should read more. Um, but once again, only one class is devoted to race, believe it or not. Uh, and in that class, you know, we read a lot of different stuff. We touch on race in the class about gender and family formation and family structure, because obviously family structure is a big problem in the black community and a big part of why they're failing, they're failing to uh, progress more. So we touch on that. But, you know, we don't read The Clash of Visions, which we should. We read some soul on issues like affirmative action, disparate impact, some of the kind of quasi-legal hot-button questions that uh, pertain to race. Yeah, and just having said that, it's a shame. It just shows that conservative political and legal thought is too big a topic for the equivalent of a semester course. We actually spread the course out over a year because there's so many readings and some of them are challenging and difficult because they're old. We spread it out, but it's really only a semester's worth of credit it's a one semester seminar. It's kind of ridiculous. These, these theorists, these thinkers, these readings, these ideas, they should have been present in these students' education all along. 
right? And a lot of these students do social sciences undergraduates. They do history. They do philosophy. They study race up the wazoo. I mean, you know, all of the the fashionable hot-button topics are there. Poverty, redistribution, you know, uh, capitalism, critiques of capitalism, um, economics from a progressive point of view. Those are the places where they should be getting the counterpoint of conservative thought. They're not getting it. So we have to sort of start from scratch. We start from scratch in my course. They never heard of Edmund Burke. They don't know what Frederick Hayek has to say. You know, they've barely heard of William F. Buckley, uh, James Burnham, all of the mid-century people who were on the right. Richard Weaver, who's that? Um, we have a lot of catching up to do. Is, is your course available online in any format? Well, I have a syllabus, and when people ask me, because traditionally our courses at Penn Law are not available to the general public, but when people write me and ask me for my syllabus in conservative political and legal thought, I immediately send it to them with the caveat that it is a work in progress. You know, new things are being written all the time, new ideas are being floated all the time. Um, there's lots of developments politically on left versus right and right versus left, of course. There's the whole Trump phenomenon. So I'm constantly rejiggering it and updating it uh, to try and keep up with some of this stuff. There's the whole anti-racism movement. There's the George Floyd uh, debacle and, and all of that. So I have to try and be up to date on what it means to be a conservative in the United States, which frankly is a very protean thing, if the truth be told. When I didn't mention this to you when we met at the conference, but I went to Penn undergraduate oh. and I was an intellectual history major and ah. I studied under Dr. Alan Coors. Oh, of course. Yes. He's a sort of an exception to the rule here. He he really tries to cover all the territory. He's retired now, but I know him very well. And he's a great academic and uh, a terrific champion of free thought and free inquiry. And I commend him for that. Of course, now he's gone. This is, I think, emblematic of what's happened in the academy. All the old guard, uh, like Alan Coors, are you know, now emeritus or they've retired completely. They haven't replaced them. There are a few cuckoos in the nest like me, and they're trying to get rid of us. I mean, I am now being targeted by disciplinary. I am in the middle of a disciplinary process based on charges brought by my dean. And this takes up like 90% of my time. It is unbelievable, as the students tell me, the process is the punishment. And the dean has badmouthed me. He has told the students they have reason to think I'm biased. A lot of students avoid my courses. A lot of the faculty just won't even look me in the eye. I think that's, you know, an unholy brew of they know the dean shouldn't be going after me. That's inconsistent with academic values that Penn supposedly pays lip service to, although can't really take them seriously. They also don't like my politics. They don't like my views, but 
they can't be bothered to actually engage me about them. And they have this very kind of, you could call it up to date, I call it faddish idea that they have to protect the students from the slightest discomfort or subjective upset from ideas that they don't like. Uh, the students can't be expected to deal with this stuff. They can't be even exposed to it. They're such delicate creatures. And especially the minority students get just an incredible amount of pampering and cosseting, right? Uh, as far as I could tell, Penn and universities like it have a very low opinion of these students' ability to deal with intellectual challenge because they will not challenge them intellectually. They're afraid to. If you're interested in the syllabus Amy uses for her year-long course in conservative political thought at Penn Law, I'll put a link in the show notes to her syllabus. If you teach a similar course at another university, this might be very helpful as well. What I find interesting about Amy's relationship with Thomas Sowell is that she uses his texts almost exclusively in relation to his work about race and affirmative action. I find that fascinating because in my mind, Sowell is about so much more than just race. In fact, if Sowell had never written a single word about race, I would still be doing this podcast to talk about all his many other ideas. For example, if you take a look at the Thomas Sowell Reader, which, by the way, is a great first Sowell book for anyone, the book is designed to provide a solid overview of Sowell's thinking. And it has six main sections, and only one of the six is about race and ethnicity. The other five are about social issues, economics, political issues, legal issues, and educational issues. So I think it's accurate to say that only about one-sixth of Sowell's body of work deals with race and ethnicity. The rest is five-sixths, and it's quite substantial. It's not an uncommon view, even among many Sowell fans, to think that Sowell is the guy who sets the record straight on issues of race. Well, that might be true, but I have news for you. Sowell sets the record straight on a lot of other issues as well. And it's high time for someone to set the record straight about Sowell. You know, someone should do a podcast about him. The interview continues. And what are your thoughts about the Supreme Court case currently being decided on affirmative action at Harvard and the University of North Carolina? I'd love to hear your thoughts about that. Well, everybody has a prediction about how those are going to turn out, right? I don't. Um, I think it's very hard to say how they will turn out. There's really two issues here. One is, you know, what will the court decide? Um, and the second is, will it make any difference? On what the court will decide, you know, if you know the affirmative action cases well, going all the way back to Bakke and then Grutter and then Fisher, you know, the big cases, um, you realize that they contain many fragmented opinions, many different takes on 
what ought to be done about affirmative action and its legality. Uh, and there are many different avenues in which you could narrow affirmative action, you could undermine it, you could abolish it, uh, or anything in between. There's also questions about the legal basis uh, for any challenge. So for a state school, there's the Equal Protection Clause and Title VI, which are very different. Uh, and for Harvard, the Harvard case, the Equal Protection Clause has nothing to do with it because it doesn't apply to private institutions. People tend to forget that. Uh, it, only Title VI. And the court has pretty much ignored Title VI. What does Title VI say? It says in very explicit, particularized terms that no institution, including educational ones, can receive federal funds if they discriminate on the basis of race. It's it's quite explicit about that. It's not like the Equal Protection Clause, which is open-ended, right? Equal protection of laws. What the heck does that mean, right? can mean anything. Uh, and it's just very hard to see how affirmative action can survive taking Title VI seriously, right? So if you predict that the court will be very textualist and take Title VI seriously, they will demolish the whole line of cases, right? But there's no guarantee that they will do that. I think they should do that. And if Congress wants to fix it and enshrine uh, affirmative action in the permissions of the Civil Rights Act, then they should do that. Of course, the chance that they'll do that is zero because they can't manage to do anything. But if the court does strike down affirmative action as a mistake from day one, then the question is, will it change anything? I mean, Harvard, first of all, Harvard does receive vast sums of money in federal funds, but it is a private university, and it's quite a rich one. So it could go private. I don't think it will want to do that because it will demolish a lot of its programs. But if it went totally private... It could reinstate affirmative action by race or have any kind of method for selecting its students that they want. Now, I don't think it's going to go that route, but that is a possibility. If it continues to receive federal funds, though, they can easily make it look like they're not using race, but effectively maintain a lot of the diversity mix that they already have in terms of race and background. For some reason, and I don't share this priority and obsession, but the upper middle class, the powers that be, the elites are obsessed with achieving diversity, racial diversity. This is sort of like a vanity project of theirs. I think it is, you know, there's less there than meets the eye. Uh, but if they're determined to do that, they can do it. I mean, None of the legal materials incorporate the SAT or the requirement that academic merit, cognitive ability, good scores and grades be the criteria for getting into a place like Harvard. Harvard could either sacrifice or hide uh, measures of academic ability and use other criteria. They're already doing that. Okay, now they run the risk of debasing their brand because a lot of the prestige of Harvard depends on getting the smartest people. A lot of Harvard's prestige depends on them getting the best and the brightest. 
but they've been in the business of denigrating the whole concept of the best and the brightest for many years now. The meritocracy is sort of under a cloud. Now there's a lot of hypocrisy surrounding that, of course. But they could just say, well, you know, we're going to use other criteria. We're not going to fetishize SATs and other indicia of cognitive ability. And what does this all boil down to? Okay, what it all boils down to is this chronic situation, this chronic problem, which is that blacks lag in their test scores behind whites and by a a very significant amount. And it especially comes to bite you out there on the right tail of the bell curve when you're dealing with the smartest people, just because of the way bell curves behave and shifted bell curves behave you know, blacks of very, very high intelligence are extremely rare. And those are the people that Harvard is mining disproportionately. Now we have another phenomenon in our society now, which is that Asians are outgunning and outclassing whites and others in their test scores. There, there are measures that Asians are smarter, quote unquote, than whites on average because they have a higher IQ score. Whether that really explains their outsized SAT scores is a matter of debate. So we have this, here's the problem. Different groups do not do equally well in tests of cognitive ability and in academic skill and in their performance in demanding academic exercises. They do not do equally well. And that is a kind of ongoing embarrassment. We've tried everything to change it. It's part of our dogman ideology that all ethnic groups are equal, that outcomes have to be equal, that we somehow have to make them equal. And if we don't, it's racism. That's, I would call that the axiom 101 of wokeism. Uh, And, you know, Harvard has a lot of smart people and they're going to try to figure out how to continue with that even though they're not allowed to use race. And frankly, and they're, of course, are going to use a lot of secrecy too, because there has been a marked decline in candor about these things uh, in past years. So they will take advantage of that. So I could go on about this, but really the bottom line and what I'm trying to say is uh, it's very hard to predict what effect, if any, this decision will have, even if it says affirmative action is illegal because the elite, you know, guardians of our elite institutions, including, of course, the universities, which is their ultimate bastion, they are so utterly ideologically committed to diversity as the highest good and to the equal ability of all groups as a fundamental precept even in the teeth of lots of data suggesting that it's just not so. So, you know, it remains to be seen what's going to happen given those circumstances. Be fun to watch, not fun for someone like me who is, you know, in the university and is sort of caught in this this web, Um, but certainly, I guess, for outsiders. Nobody's really an outsider to elite universities because everybody's trying to get in, but uh, as the method to the good life, right? Uh, But I, I think it's very hard to predict. I would be reluctant to predict.
if the Supreme Court does not strike down these affirmative action policies, can you predict what would happen then? Would it be basically a you know free reign to go all in on affirmative action nationwide? Well, first of all, according to the court's opinions, um, the universities, at least, you know, ostensibly and formally and technically don't have a free reign because there already are restrictions in the law on how you can use racial identity and group identity in admissions if you accept federal funds, taxpayer dollars, right? Um, So things like you can't have strict quotas, uh, you can't have a rigid formula. You have to go case by case. It has to be one factor among many, and it can't be the dominant factor among many. Now, this stuff is all made up, right? Um, one could question these rules, but the rules are restrictive. They appear to be restrictive. Whether they're actually restrictive in practice is a whole other question. The only way to really get a totally free hand in how you run your university right, under our current regime is to completely cut yourself off from taxpayer and federal control or state control. Be totally private. And, you know, this is interesting because we have a public-private distinction in this country, which as a conservative, I endorse. It has many uses. It means, among other things, that the government doesn't take over everything. But there are these bastions of private discretion and private action, these spheres that are separate from the government and the majoritarian control, and I think that's a healthy thing. But, you know, the prerogative of private action can sometimes be used in what some would view as negative or bigoted ways. You know, so if a school is totally self-funded and wants to discriminate on the basis of race... There's really nothing in the law right now that would stop them. Now, of course, there are social norms and social pressures that would stop them, right? Even even totally private universities like Hillsdale or, you know, some lesser-known colleges, religious colleges, although there are precious few of such places, right, given the economics of higher ed, they don't really dare to say, well, we're going to create Whitopia or whatever. It's interesting because... Historically, black institutions probably discriminate like crazy on the basis of race, but everybody looks the other way because the affirmative action mentality says, well, that's a good thing. We have to be unequal in order to bring about equality and all of that kind of Orwellian double think is is operating there. So, you know, I, I just, I think that given the reality of you know, the huge influx of federal funds into even private higher ed. And you can't imagine how much money is really pouring in in various ways. If the Supreme Court has a very anemic approach and doesn't do much, then business as usual will continue. Business as usual will continue. They will limit the number of Asians. Um, They will continue to use meritocratic methods, although they're doing it less and less for their own reasons. They will limit the number of Asians because Asians, for whatever reason, are really good at standardized tests. Whether it actually plays out in terms of their achievements in the broader sphere is unknown because achievement, of course, is not just a matter of brain power. It's a matter of personality, inventiveness, 
temperament, traditions, culture, you know, all that stuff, which is very hard to measure. So we don't know how a, we don't know how an Asian leadership class will function in the United States. People hate it when I say that, but it's true. I mean, will they, you know, will there be magic dirt and they'll become more American than Americans or will they retain a lot of the aspects of their Asian background? We, we just don't know, but they will limit Asians. They will jack up the number of blacks and Hispanics that would ordinarily make it in. By academic criteria, there will be double standards, which there are now all over the place. And whites will continue to be a shrinking portion of these elite schools, partly for the reason that they're shrinking as a matter of the demographic portion overall, uh, and partly because there has to be room for all these other people. So, yeah, I, I see Harvard as, you know, being Harvard forever. What that will do to their reputation, to, to their position in the higher ed firmament, really hard to say. Reputations are very, very sticky in this area. Prestige is the name of the game. They have all these slavish donors and alumni, you know, who are just oblivious, I think, to what is going on. Don't care. Don't really even care that much about the search for truth or anything like that. I mean, they take advantage of technological and social innovations like crazy, you know, medical science and all that. But, you know, they don't really understand how that comes about. They just want their little Caitlin to get into Princeton and they want to be able to go to football games and, you know, hobnob with the alumni. Believe me, I know a million people like this. Is I call it the upper middle class. Well, I'll use it. This is a profanity. Upper middle class, S-H-I-T. I, the people are just so hung up on this stuff. And they're not bad people. You know, they're just behaving like people of their class and station. I'm totally disillusioned with the Ivies. I mean, I don't give a penny to them, nor would I ever. But very hard to get other people to see what's going on when they don't want to see it. And they don't care. They just don't care. Most people do not, you know, A. E. Hausman said, this is a quote I love, the love of truth is the faintest of human passions. Right? It is the faintest. Of, when you hear that, you, all of a sudden you understand why it is impossible to get the alumni donors to rise up in rebellion. When, when I studied history and I saw periods like the Salem witch hunts or the rise of Nazism in Germany, I would, I would often view those periods as sort of through like a black and white lens. Like, oh, that was of another, another type of humanity that people could fall for these um, things. It seemed so otherworldly, like, oh, we're so much smarter now. We don't fall for these types of uh, you know, insane, uh, you know, mass hysterias. But it seems like we're in one of those right now. Mm. Do you see that at all? Well, I hear you. I absolutely hear you. Uh, I'm always very reluctant to use the reductio ad Hitlerum parallel because I really view that as, I hate the word extreme, but, you know, it, it's so egregious. It's so awful. It's so out there. It's... It's an example of a country that has so much going for it, people who are so 
accomplished and civilized just going horribly off the rails in in this murderous way that I think it's almost unique. But, I mean, you're telling me it's not, and there's a sense in which, of course, it isn't. A friend of mine and I often wonder about how it could have happened. But, of course, it, you know, it doesn't take much for it to happen. I think the... The advances of modern society, the the advances and the progress that we have undeniably seen through the 17th, 18th, you know, through the most recent centuries, it is a very delicate ecology. I will use that term again, as liberalism is a delicate ecology, you know, as commercial Republican Western society is a delicate ecology, and it is really doesn't take much to throw it off and have the more primitive and rapacious and murderous elements of mankind come through uh, in terrible ways. So I'm going to agree with you on that, right? So I don't want to compare what is happening, you know, the, the kind of woke takeover of elite society today and the divisions and the partisanship and rancor to what happened in Germany. But I will just see it as a kind of instance of, that going off of the rails. And I, it does happen. It happens quickly. It happens overnight. And in a way, it's a kind of failure of leadership and failure of nerve. I think there have been failures of leadership over the past hundred years of people who just failed to realize what a wonderful thing we have going. And, you know, liberal, commercial, rights-based society, the outgrowth of, of British traditions is very parochial. It's not a universal phenomenon or Western European traditions. What a wonderful thing we had going and failed to sort of preserve, protect, and defend it. Well, because you have Marxist influences and all sorts of other influences that were highly critical of it. But I see them all as mistaken and ungrateful. And that is really what we're up against and it's interesting, and, you know, this may sound outrageous, but the failure to defend, be grateful for, preserve, protect the achievements of our society and its basic fundamental tenets, that failure which represents this veering off into this horrible, illiberal direction, you know, of so-called wokeness and anti-racism, is in some ways Hitler's revenge. It only took him a hundred years, right? But many of the things that he did and the reaction to the terrible things that he did has now come back to haunt us in a way that is destroying us. And let me give you a, a very concrete example of that. Our immigration policy, our crazy thinking about nationalism, about strong borders, about the importance of sovereign nations, about the importance of citizenship and citizens controlling who comes into their country and who is part of their country. These are all ideas that are under a cloud, are under attack right now, all right, from the left. Why? Because, you know, not letting people in distress come into your country, that that was a horrible mistaken reaction to Hitler. And, you know, it all goes back to the mistakes we supposedly made in World War II and not saving this group and not saving that group. Of course, that has opened the door to horrible abuses 
of the asylum process, of the immigration process, where we just don't feel like we can stand up and say, no, there are distinctions that are still valid. An economic migrant is not a refugee. Maybe we should have done something with the refugees from Hitler. Personally, I think we could have saved most of the Jews of Europe by distributing them worldwide. If the State Department had shown some imagination, we wouldn't have had to all let them all into the United States, which I understand some people were opposed to, and I understand why they were. We could have shown some initiative and some imagination and solved the problem. Instead, we left them to their fate. I'm not endorsing that. But the notion that what people from South America and from Central America are facing in coming to the United States today and just coming over our border is similar to the genocidal, systematic murder that Hitler was inflicting is just, it's a lie. You know, it's just shows muzzy thinking. We can strengthen our border and deport all of these people who have no valid asylum claims, just want, you know, coming for economic reasons. We can do that without betraying the lessons of World War II. And our failure to do that is, I say, Hitler's revenge, because in a sort of perverted response to Hitler's murderous, insane, lunatic behavior, we are now undermining and destroying our very society. You know, we are now turning against Western values, turning against, you know, strong nations, turning against all of the conventions that help us to maintain world order and peace and liberal values and democracy. Democracy, of course, right? Citizenship is essential to democracy. We're destroying all of that? That is not the proper response. That is, I think, a muddled, self-destructive response. And so I am totally against it. I am appalled by what is happening at the border. I favor restrictionist immigration policies. I think the West has a distinctive culture. It needs to really worry about preserving it. I think vast numbers of people from the third world undermine it, all of that. So, yes, I think societies can easily go wrong. We have to be eternally vigilant. But I see our society going wrong, too, in, and in ways that a lot of people think represents some kind of improvement. It's not an improvement. My last question for you is, it's more of a personal nature. You know, how, what is it that motivates you to... Well, I call it fight the good fight. You know, there's a song I remember growing up in the 70s called Fight the Good Fight by Triumph, which was a a rock song that I used to find very motivating. And I I think of you as someone who fights the good fight every day. And, you know, how, how is it that you're able to do that? You're an employee of a university. You're a professor. You have to get along in a social environment of the university. They're, they're now go, doing battle with you accusing you of this and of that. It's it's making your life, you know, a living hell teaching. And what is it that motivates you to keep fighting this fight? And you're, you're very outspoken. You don't beat around the bush on your views. 
Um, and I feel like a lot of the a lot of our listeners probably find themselves in a similar position. They see things going on around them that they don't agree with, but they keep their mouths shut. Mm-hmm. They go along to get along. How do you find the strength and the determination to just speak up, speak your mind, no matter what the consequences? How do you do that? Well, I mean, first of all, it should be pointed out that, you know, of all the people who might be called upon to, quote unquote, fight the culture war and voice their convictions, I'm in, you know, a pretty good position. I mean, I try not to be judgmental about people who don't have my advantages. I am judgmental about people who do have my advantages. So that's a different subject. But I have tenure at a major university. Um, I have a a supportive family. I have a husband who makes a reasonably good living, has a high-status job. I'm turning 70 in a week, and so I'm nearing the end of my career. I'd rather go on for a while, but if I can't, it's not the end of my world. Um, I have friends. uh, I don't have financial worries. uh, And, you know, so I've got all of these these positives that enable me, if I can take the heat, and there's plenty of heat when you voice unpopular views, believe me, you, you can't even know the half of it, right? The second thing is that I... Yeah, have certain convictions about how society should be and how the university should be, because I am an intellectual and a professor, right? I am an academic, and I really have a strong vision of what the ideal university looks like, and it's very much grounded in the past and the traditions and the evolution uh, that has gone before, Uh I think that we have moved in the right direction until recently and that we ought to preserve, protect, and defend that. And I have a sense of gratitude. I am acutely aware, and this goes back to your question about how can seemingly functional societies go wrong? I am acutely aware of how fragile such an order is and how hard it is to build, how much blood, sweat, and tears and effort went into building it, and here I'm. we're looking to those who came before, our ancestors. This is very Burkean, of course. Uh, and how easy it is to tear it down and destroy it, right? So that is my mentality and my mindset. I value what has been built and created. I truly believe that it is good and right. Perfect? No. But good and right and, and positive I admire the achievements of our culture and society, the West. Okay, I benefit from them. And I just feel like it's worth enduring some hardship and some sacrifice. It's interesting because, you know, when I experience this as just, to use the lefty term, totally exhausting, uh, and, you know, have days where I think, why do I need this? Why am I doing this? I really, you know, have two thoughts. One is, as I said at the conference, non-sibi, Latin for not for ourselves. I am not doing this for myself, but for the sake of preserving what is good. And also for my children and grandchildren. I have three children. I currently have two grandchildren. I'm sure I will have more. And I feel like I have a duty to preserve what has been built through so many sacrifices 
for them, right? The second is, you know, when I have the bad days and I've overwhelmed with all of the ways in which pen is pummeling me, um, I say to myself, with all the good fortune I have, with all the privileges, with all the good luck that I have had in my life, and I certainly have had all of those things, right? Although I don't come from privilege and wealth, I feel like my, you know, inborn abilities, my uh, parenting, uh, and all of, you know, the good things that I've done and that have happened to me, I am acutely aware of how lucky I am and how fortunate. I say to myself, it's when the rubber meets the road and you, you are challenged by adversity that, you know, that is when you need to draw on that and prove yourself. I mean, if I cannot withstand what, what is happening to me right now and stand up for, you know, what I think is, is good and right, what good am I? I, I just, you know, have, I've betrayed all the gifts and all the benefits that I have had. So I want to uh, be worthy. I want to be worthy of everything that has been given to me. And in order to be worthy, I have to fight the fight. Paul, um, St. Paul has, you know, this wonderful biblical passage where he says, you know, we have fought the fight. We have stayed the course. And I intend to fight the fight and stay the course. You know, what's the, the, uh, the pain that it in, entails and, and, you know, it's, it's not fun. Is not, and the, there's a third thing, and then I'll stop. What, what I am going through pales in comparison with the horrible sufferings and deprivations and miseries of mankind. You have to take a broader view. You have to step back and look at things in a very wide lens. You know, if you know anything about history or the past or what human beings have gone through and endured for thousands of years, what society has been like for men, women, and children, you, you have to see your own troubles as trifling. You just have to. And I wake up every morning and say, these are paltry compared to what people have gone through. Uh, the famine, the disease, the suffering, the war, you know, the genocide, the just sheer hardship of life in past eras. We, we are relieved of all of that today. I certainly am. And yeah, you know, I have the nasties at Penn, these screaming Mimi students. You know, I really have to say, I mean, I get in trouble because this is derogatory. You can't ever say anything negative about students. That's the new dispensation. Many of them are just pathetic. I, I just... <laughs> Sorry. Sorry to have to say that. They're pathetic. If you were to leave academia for one reason or another, would you consider working at a think tank like Hoover or the Manhattan Institute and continue speaking out on these issues? Yeah, I mean, sure, if they'd have me. I mean, little known fact, being at a think tank, even a right-leaning one, has its own constraints. I mean, they have donors, they have people they have to please and all of that. So, 
that's not the perfect world, but I would certainly probably try to get a job teaching part-time, maybe at some place like Hillsdale or Claremont's Washington shop, something like that. Those are two organizations I really admire and that I contribute to and that I have, you know, I have many friends in those places. So those would be places I would think about. I would think about even teaching, you know, at the K through 12 level. K through 12 is just a mess. Oh, I mean, what happens there is a horror show. Uh, I could probably maybe do some good there. I would certainly continue writing. Uh, I have relationships with various journalistic outlets and magazines, and there's a whole online world, right, which is where really a lot of the more interesting ideas are being voiced and explored, frankly. I mean, the interesting stuff has is moving out of the universities, and, and it is online. You're probably aware of that. Right. Well, as, as Tyler Cohen said at the conference, he said that, you know, academics have 100x more free speech than they ever did with the Internet. They just need to right. take advantage of oh, it. But they, they're going to pay for it. I mean, there are, there are going to be consequences if you want to stay in academia. You can't also, uh, you know, be a freewheeler online because chances are you'll get in trouble. You kind of have to choose. I think I think that is the circ- the situation today, more or less. I mean, there is, you know, there are some people who get away with some things, but you're always in danger of the university cottoning on to what you're saying and objecting vociferously. But yeah, so I, you know, I would figure out stuff to do. And once again, I'm 70, so you know, I've got my grandchildren now, and I'm not, you know, at the a hyper speed that I was before. Um, I would like to stay within the university. Let me just say that one reason I'm keen on staying in the university and keeping my job uh, is for the students. I regularly am contacted by students, you know, at very regular intervals, students from all parts of Penn, you know, Wharton, the graduate school, junior professors, undergrads, rarely contacted by undergrads, and some law students as well. And I've developed relationships with them. You know, I meet with them. I talk to them. I have lunch with them uh, in a pastoral and advisory capacity. I think it's really important for there to be a conservative or conservative professors. You know, I shouldn't be the only one. Uh, Many of them tell me I am the only one. I am the only one that they can trust and discuss certain things with that they're not afraid of. That's amazing to me, but it's amazing, but not surprising. Amazing, but not surprising. Um, You know, whether that means anything to Penn or whether they see that as just increasing their alarm at my presence, I don't know. But these students are very, very, very wary of speaking out, of expressing their opinion. I don't tell them otherwise because I know that they are very vulnerable. They have no protections. If someone goes after them, you know, because they have said the wrong thing uh, and violated the creed of diversity, inclusion, and equity or anti-racism or whatever the creed is, 
they could be in a lot of trouble and it would fo- it would follow them throughout their life you know into their jobs into the real world and i think what a lot of these students are facing and i've heard this from more than one right is wow is there any way to escape the culture war i realized that there's a culture war in the university and of course one side has got all the chips and they're winning but when you go out into the real world of elite jobs you can't you can't escape it it's it's everywhere right and i'm not in a position to disagree with them i'll tell you i can't give them false assurances you know i'm not going to tell them fairy tales i say you can try and escape it for as long as you can but you know you may not be interested in war but war is interested in you sooner or later you may have to make a choice i hope not but you may have to i have made a choice with my eyes open i have done it consciously i understand the costs um and i am paying some of those costs and i'm doing it willingly but this is not a strategy i necessarily recommend to anyone else except i think other tenured professors should be doing it right i'm very disappointed that other tenured professors you know who are just live this cushy life they're in the catbird seat that they won't stick their neck out i think it's horrible some of them i think are you know lefties who truly believe a lot of this stuff but a lot of them are not i know that because they complain to me privately and i say don't complain to me and it doesn't help me one bit that you're complaining to me not one bit oh it's nice that you express support many of them don't even do that express support of me personally but it doesn't help me in any palpable way you know you have to stick your neck out criticize your dean come out with it get out of the closet and say this is ridiculous what's happening is is ridiculous the catering to students the power that's been given to the DIE establishment which is horribly mischievous and misused well that's partly because they have nothing to do right you're a diversity director you sit around drinking coffee all day i mean talk about a non job talk about a bullshit job right there's a category of bullshit jobs this guy graber wrote about it this is like the ultimate empty <coughs> vacuous bullshit job and of course people are frantically looking around for things to do and they make mischief like you know issuing codes of words that we're not allowed to use like field i guess we can't say you're a master of your field anymore a friend of mine said what about camp what about concentration what about gas what about guard i mean jews should ban those words too right there's no end to the words that you can ban all right, I'm going to get off this riff, but you take my meaning. Amy Wax, thank you for joining me on the Genius of Thomas Sowell podcast. Bye. Thanks for having me.
want to help me fight the good fight, please consider becoming a patron of this podcast at patreon.com backslash soulgenius. You can also support the show by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. And of course, you can purchase our Thomas Sowell quote post-it notepads at geniussowell.etsy.com as a great way to share the wit and wisdom of you-know-who with friends and family. I'm Alan Woolen. Thanks for listening.